1: This episode contains stories about illness, death, archaic language, and ill treatment and discrimination of people living with HIV and AIDS, which are terms used interchangeably in the logbooks and this episode because of the time period.
2: This is a logbook entry from July the 6th, 1985 at 2:50. Sunday Express reporter called to say that he was working on a story about a phone call threatening that an AIDS sufferer would inject his blood into food in a Safeway supermarket. Said police were taking the threat seriously.
1: This is a logbook entry from January the 24th, 1987. The volunteer who took the call was Neil. 2am. Vauxhall Tavern raided by police. Some 20 to 30, some in plain clothes, some wearing rubber gloves. No apparent reason for raid. Several arrests. Two callers phoned on behalf of friends by 3am. 4.40am, 12 reported arrested, most released. That first entry just leaves me speechless. We talked about police raids a lot in season one. And as is apparent here, it continues on into the 80s with rubber gloves.
0: Yeah, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern wasn't the only place raided around this time. I didn't know that until we started working on this uh, episode. And surgical gloves especially were a police tactic used in the USA and the UK. It just feels really bizarre to imagine the police wearing gloves like that, to think, you know, were they fuelled by ignorance about how HIV was transmitted, or was it an actual intention to insult? You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ history and conversations about being queer today
1: in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1983 and 1991.
0: And all of our conversations are led by these logbook entries. I'm Adam Smith.
1: And I'm Tash Walker.
0: Episode 3, Damage Caused.
1: And this episode is going to be about the way HIV and AIDS led to hostility and discrimination.
0: It's the third of our three episodes about HIV and AIDS this season. And we're going to hear from people who experienced the fresh wave of discrimination against LGBTQ plus folks due to the HIV epidemic. A very special switchboard volunteer and also Elaine and Lynn, who you might remember from season one.
1: They yeah they met went for a night out at Gateways uh, danced to Joan Armatrading and of course have been together ever since.
0: But they've got a story to start off this episode from the mid eighties regarding one of their other favourite social spots.
3: Stallions was in a sort of back street off of Tottenham Court Road and I didn't know what to expect. I just remember going in there and it was quite dark initially coming into a sort of brighter area. And there was just this really happy buzz about it. Music, laughter, people knowing each other. I can remember clearly this woman who was probably about my age now, in her 70s, with all these gay men and being twirled around. It was just quite mesmerising. Really, it was quite old-fashioned music, and they served tea and sandwiches as part of the entrance of a few pounds. It was just a delight, so it became a very, very regular Sunday afternoon event.
4: Elaine took me there Sunday afternoon. I didn't really know what to expect. We queued to get in, and uh, we went down the steps. It was really buzzy, and you could have a cup of tea. There was many cups of tea or coffee. There was always a plate of sandwiches and cake, and uh, the music would start, the dancing. And it was just, wow, miles and miles away from where I'd come two days before from up in Derbyshire. And uh, I just, I loved it.
3: I can remember at the time, there were quite a lot of um, transsexuals Mm. and transvestites. And when I, I didn't really understand how things worked in those days. But obviously, I think there were probably quite a lot of couples Where the woman was a heterosexual and the husband had had transitioned, and that was quite common. I would say there was predominantly one of the places probably where they enjoyed going. Um, That's sort of my my experience of that. And there were just all these wonderful, good-looking gay men men that jived and the couple. It was fantastic, you know. And I do remember one of them saying once that he just lived for the afternoon because he was married and he knew he could come out and dance and just be free for these few hours, which I've never forgotten that because it was such a touching thing and I could really relate to it. could have stayed
4: there all night, but unfortunately we had to leave probably about seven o'clock and then I would drive back up to Derbyshire for work the next morning. One weekend I came down to London and we were going to Stallions and we queued up to get in, and then they said, no, it's closed. And we found out that it had been closed down because during the week, um, the police had raided it. They'd gone in with their rubber gloves and goodness knows what they were looking for, but they closed it down immediately.
3: And so that was a sad time. There were a couple of other venues, and I think that also probably happened to the one in Leytonstone. So there was a darkening of the atmosphere, I think, for gay people. I just remember the whole thing going underground and it being very different.
1: So can you tell me a bit more about the RVT raid, Adam?
0: i I actually can't um <laughs> like because i started to get a bit obsessed with it when we noticed it in the logbook and I looked deeper and further and th- there's, there's a little bit written about it a little bit known about it there was actually a, an initial raid in 1986 in the December where police seized poppers and then they came back again in January 87 and uh, arrested people and that was the raid where they were wearing rubber gloves and the BBC made a documentary about it at the time uh, featuring Helena Kennedy interviewing the chief superintendent of Kennington police and and uh, people that were in the bar the, um, on the nights that it was raided, including a guy called Ken Comish, who talked about his experience of saying something like, why are the police wearing gloves? We haven't all got AIDS and then getting arrested for being drunk and disorderly um, because he said that. And he also said that he had lost his job as a chef when customers had uh, basically complained to the manager that they had a chef that was HIV positive.
1: Oh, my God. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah it's just like the logbook show though you know this kind of discrimination was seen across every part of Mm -hmm. everyday lives from you know that story there with with ken from employment to insurance health and as george reads in this next logbook entry gay clubs
0: right and this entry is about the clubs bolts which actually was the location of the after party to the conway hall conference about aids that we mentioned in episode two
5: this is a logbook entry from May 15th, 1985. Saturday, 23rd evening. Around 30 men, bottled members and guests entering Bolts Nightclub, shouting abuse in connection with AIDS. Damage caused, but nothing serious to individuals.
6: This is a logbook entry from the 21st of July, 1988. Beware. Caller reports the Nottingham Special Clinic advised him to tell his employer he was HIV positive. He is now sacked and moreover homeless as the info was passed on. What can I say? Ah!
5: (laughs) Wow. This is a logbook entry from November 12th, 1986. I've had personal experience of insurance companies asking me about positive test results. I applied for health insurance recently and saw a copy of the questionnaire sent to my doctor. The section on other areas included reference to any recent blood tests. So, warn callers. Incidentally, I got the policy without any reference to sexuality being made.
7: I remember I went to a dentist um, and I told them where I worked. It just reminded me, and they put a biohazard sticker on my notes. I remember that. Um, and, and I said at the time, I said, "Oh, I noticed you put a biohazard sticker on my notes." He goes, "Oh, that's because we think you're a special patient." And I said, "I said I know what it's for." And I said, "I said I do, I just work on a HIV
6: ward." This is a logbook entry from August 23rd, 1988. Paolo in Harringay area, getting shit off employer for being gay and HIV positive. No joy from negotiations between frontliners and THT and now-go-employers. Gave solicitor, but if he calls again, please give him anything else. His situation seems appalling. English not first language. And this is from 1988. You know, things have improved and you know, lovely Paolo would be protected under the Equalities Act. But again, you know, we still hear stuff like this happening. And it was, it was, it was rampant then. It was rampant back in this time. I, again, you know, really pleased that, to see how Switchboard respond. And the important thing about picking up about English not being his first language and making sure that people are there to support him. Because this is 32 years ago. And if I can just kind of relate it to COVID recently so I was you know speaking to colleagues at Positively UK she says lockdown was happening and asking you know what are some of the key issues because I was creating a, a webinar for POS people and I would find out what are the key issues and they were saying actually you know with the lockdown and, and shielding some people are going to work and they're disclosing for the first time and they're getting shipped from their employers because, and they don't know what to do and it was like, but this is 20 I mean I wasn't surprised you know it was 2020 employers don't know But what was was really good was that Positive UK were able to give these people advice and say, under the Equalities Act, you're protected and you didn't have to disclose and blah, blah, blah. So they've come leaps and bounds. And I think we as a a community have come so much further where we're empowered, our organisations are empowered to make sure that we're giving people the tools to push back if they need to. So if Paolo had called up today, we'd be able to go, okay, you're, you're protected. We got you.
8: This is a logbook entry from April 27, 1987, Re Burlington Health Club. Caller claims that staff made remarks about his race. He says they inquired about his age and his right of residence in the UK. They went on to ask about AIDS and any other diseases that he may have brought from abroad. White customers who arrived after him were served first and not subjected to interrogation. When Caller said that he was referred by London Lesbian and Gay Switchboard, one member of staff said we should know better and not be so pathetic. Can we do something about this, please? Personally, I feel I need no further information. I refuse to give out the Burlington as from now, and I think we should take it off our files.
0: There is so much hostility and discrimination going on in this period. Tash, do we even want to know how the media was covering it?
1: Probably not. Um, But one of the things that definitely stands out to us um, and that all of our contributors remember is this gay plague.
0: Oh, the sort of tabloid language.
1: Super tabloid language.
0: Yeah. I guess more coverage for the epidemic. And how it was affecting people was good in a way, because it meant greater awareness at least.
1: Yeah, definitely. But with greater awareness comes an increase in prejudice.
2: Most of Britain's AIDS victims are homosexual men from London. Now the government is taking action to control the disease. But will the capital's gays be able to adapt to protect themselves?
0: This is a clip from the London programme. Broadcast in the capital by London Weekend Television in March 1985, it's a good example of HIV-AIDS programming at the time.
2: In the past few weeks, Britain has been made suddenly and joltingly aware of AIDS. The stories in the popular press have made sure that by now, most adults have formed an impression of what AIDS is.
0: This is a logbook entry from January 15th, 1987. David phoned to let us know about the rather unpleasant editorial in The Sun this morning. It basically says that gay groups should not be discouraging people to have the test and that gays should be locked away to prevent the spread of this evil disease.
2: This is a logbook entry from June 19th, 1986. The volunteer who took the call was Dennis. Caller reports that in Radioactive, a program on the BBC World Service, this morning at 1.30am, there was a particularly cruel and despicable sketch on AIDS and gay men. It introduced the idea of quarantine for gay men and dresses for gay men. He rang the duty officer to complain. He urges us to do the same in the hope that this will stop the program being repeated through the week worldwide
9: media was very hostile to queer people in the 80s. The headlines seemed to be screaming every other day, you know, such a celebrity as a queer, and outing them. Horrible. You know, if they dragged them through the gutter, it would be very unpleasant. Ham St Clement was being dragged through the gutters by the uh, tabloids sitting doorsteps, and Emily Trashed being a lesbian. How dare she be in a a national soap opera and be a lesbian at the same time? Um, Yeah, there was was quite a lot of that. The the media was not very friendly to queer people in general. They they were always uh, attacking one group or another, and particularly men with AIDS. Um, I remember seeing the headline that, you know, calling it the gay play. It was commonly referred to as the gay play. It was quite horrible. It was horrible times to live through.
8: Logbook entry, 19th of January, 1984. Tony Conrath, who's a regular volunteer, Tony Conrath has just rung in to tell us that Women's Hour is right now doing a pretty bad scare piece on AIDS. He's ringing them to complain, but it may well lead to some calls over the next few days from women and faggots who've been listening and got the willies drapped. And that was me. And and you might be surprised at the use of the word faggots. But Switchboard, you know, I would never have used that out in the general public. But in Switchboard, we we called each other faggots and dykes quite happily at this stage. It was reclaiming the language. Um, But yeah, we would the media would um, do stuff and we'd hear about it and rush to get more volunteers on the phones because we knew we'd get the calls.
1: The press covered AIDS as a mega story, especially if it was someone
0: remotely famous. Yeah, well, we had in episode one that note in the logbook about when Rock Hudson died in 1985. It was such a huge story and a sign for most people that something really, really big was happening. Oh,
7: but There was some A-gays, we used to say at the time. There was A-gays, so there were often people who might have been well-known in the media or the theatre or that sort of thing. So the press always wanted a story, so you know, we had to be really careful if there was an agency staff because it would, might have been somebody from the press, but there'd be things like they would come and say, I felt, you know, it was really awful for the nurse. They'd come to the nurse or to me or somebody, it didn't happen to me, but they would say, oh, we put, here's some, oh we've got a fl- uh, delivery of some flowers. And they'd say, thank you very much. And they'd go, oh, so you can confirm he's in then.
0: Tash, I guess it's time to talk about Steve.
1: Yeah, so we've had a couple of entries in the logbooks from a volunteer called
10: Steve. Logbook entry, 3rd of February, 1987. The one thing I really want to do right now, I can't. That's to talk to other antibody positive people at Switchboard. The reason I can't is that I don't know who you are. Hope to hear from you soon. Love. Love. Sorry, no name yet. Large pink highlighter. Can we talk? What I want us to do is to organise ourselves into smallish groups, meeting on a regular or an ad hoc basis in order to discuss our own feelings about AIDS, death, dying, etc. And in order to offer support to each other. I'm sorry if this has seemed a bit woolly and ill-expressed. I'm still feeling upset. Ideas, offers, help, solidarity, please. Steve.
1: So these logbook entries tell the story of Steve, a volunteer, testing positive, coming out anonymously for support.
0: Trying to form a group. In Switchboard, so that volunteers who are positive can support each other and hold other volunteers to account for how they handle HIV and AIDS calls.
1: Yeah, and the last couple of entries were around the impact that it had on his life and his future.
0: Yeah, so here's the last logbook entry we found from Steve, dated May 11th, 1987.
10: My dears, I was going through a phase of being grand... With a lot of sorrow and a little regret, I'm leaving Lesbian and Gay Switchboard. As I'm exempt from phone work at the moment, there'll be no road to panics. As most of you know, earlier this year, I was diagnosed HIV antibody positive. At the same time, I ended a relationship of seven years standing. Consequently, I've had to take a long and hard look at what I want out of life and what I don't want. One of the things I don't want is telephone work at Lesbian case Gay Switchboard, so I'm off. Please understand as well that my employment at National AIDS Helpline is almost totally unrelated to my decision to go. I say almost because I'm writing this letter, okay, the draft only hours after finishing a body-positive training weekend. The training weekend was the hardest work I've done in a long time and one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. I hadn't realised how isolated I've been feeling. On the weekend, many, but by no means all people, were HIV positive. The diversity of sexualities is something else I enjoyed. But above all, the care, respect and love of the weekend have convinced me that the way forward for me is to join Body Positive. And if that means leaving Lesbian and Gay Switchboard, so be it. Two of the things that affected me most deeply over the weekend. A pair of role plays that focused on counsellors giving each other support around incipient burnout. The situation we'd both recently been in. A session on bereavement and death. I partnered with someone who'd, who recently lost a friend. His first bereavement due to AIDS. Bracket. I've lost count of the number of people I've lost. It all gets too much and I start crying. I'm in the middle of a room full of people crying. Being cuddled. Christ, I hate it when it sneaks up on you like that. The reason that got to me is oh, no, that's put that to one side.
1: Okay, we're just going to come in here, because it's quite hard to hear someone breaking up during a logbook reading.
0: Yeah, I, I remember reading these stories. I mean, we, we, we read them together and talked about them together, Tash, and um, I think we felt like we knew him. We got to, we really got to know him through these stories. And then we started wondering, well, what happened to him? I just assumed that he would be gone.
1: Yeah, I remember thinking about that too, but then after a bit of rooting around, a couple of calls, we found him in rural Wales, living alone. We really wanted to visit, to meet Steve in person and of course to interview him, but then COVID happened. But thankfully we still got to talk to him and hear his voice on a phone call.
0: Now Steve Craftman is gonna finish his own logbook entry, his last at Switchboard and then tell us more of his story.
10: I partnered with someone who'd recently lost a friend, his first bereavement due to AIDS. I've lost count of all the people I've lost. It all gets too much and I start crying. I'm lying in the middle of a room full of people crying, being cuddled by a man I've already just met knowing it's all right to do that while the workshop carries on around me. Later, I realised that most of us did just the same. So it's definitely a move forward for me, although it hurts to go. You've been a lesbian and gay switchboard nearly eight years, Steve. What do you expect? See you around with love, Steve. My signature today isn't that much different. Mm-hmm. The tea is a little more conservative. But yeah, the, the trail from the E into an X, I still do. What got to be about the word cuddled, was that I don't know if physical intimacy <laughs> I can accept the fact that I won't meet Mr. Wright for a third time but Jesus do I miss a cuddle My name's Steve, and I was the volunteer in the logbook entries. Switchboard had, it, had me for eight years. They were very important years. Basically, those years at Switchboard set me up for life. It was necessary for me to go. HIV narrowed me, focus down to HIV and how everything branches off that Um, a person only has so much energy and I needed to focus my energy into, into people living with HIV rather than the whole massive co callers to switchboard. Oh, and joined switchboard, it was so terribly easy people would phone up we'd reassure them we'd pack them off to the local gay group or the local gay bar as appropriate or would help them find accommodation and then within a few years we were talking life and death I came out in August of Seventy-six, early hours of August the sixth, to be precise. I define coming out as being as the first time I told somebody face to face. I had had a phone call to the Samaritans in the April of that year, but that doesn't count. I used to live in Birmingham. I was that went there for university, did the first year, failed the first year, decided I didn't want to. I shouldn't have gone to university in the first place, but I had the offer of a read, and I decided it being a student was better than being on the dole. Even if, you know, just show your face at the occasional lecture. That gave me the time to get involved in gay politics. First group I went to in Birmingham was uh, Gay Liberation Front, which was had another year or so to, to run at that point. And I got involved with Gay Switch Fort West Midlands. Moved to London in in spring of seventy-nine because my then partner had got a job in London. Joining London Switchboard seemed the obvious next step. My first memories of Switchboard were that it was frighteningly efficient compared to what I was used to. At West, West Midlands, there was a single phone on a desk. At London, three phones along a single desk that ran the length of the room. Files everywhere, in duplicate, in triplicate. For me, it was switchboard. Didn't really take off until 82, 83. Uh, I was unemployed, so I was doing three, four shifts a week. The reason it took off at that time, obviously, was the impending HIV epidemic, we didn't know which way to turn first to look after ourselves and our families of choice, to engage in political action, to disseminate what information we could find to get to our own support groups it was the headless chicken image (laughs) i have like a photograph memory of one night in the two brewers somebody had picked up somebody else's pint and drunk from it realized what they'd done Threw the glass across the room Screaming, I don't know what you've got. There was a sense of just waiting to see who's next. Within Switchboard, I'd actually been at Switchboard, phoned the clinic from the office line. I said, I'm phoning about me, HIV test results. And they said, Yes, I do have a result for you. And a tone of voice, it was clear. At the beginning of 87, I knew there were at least a couple of other people with HIV there. I didn't know who. Years previously, we'd lost a Lost a volunteer to hepatitis, and it was almost as though he'd never been a member. He was just, oh, he's dead. Anyway, what we need to do at the next coordinating committee is, <laughs> um, I'd say that. As an organisation, we tried to deal with it while being simultaneously being in denial about it. After testing positive myself, I wanted to form a confidential group of other positive switchboard volunteers to share our experiences and talk about how we could use them to improve our service. Logbook entry, 3rd of February, 1987. The one thing I really want to do right now, I can't. That's to talk to other antibody positive people at Switchboard. The reason I can't is that I don't know who you are. Hope to hear from you soon. Love, sorry, no name yet. Looking between the lines, what I was doing there was, this has happened in my life. I know statistics say that it's I'm not the only one this is happening to. We're stronger together. I had messages from a couple of people um from a couple of past people um The one that always perplexed me was um Somebody said I'd been brave for writing that. And I thought, how can you use that word? I didn't put my name to it. A few of us at least made made touch in the spring of 87. And then I often left it in the May, so I don't know what happened after that. As you can see in the logbooks, as I become more certain of who I am sexually these days I would I just I go out of my way to describe myself as queer it' sort of take the other box and write it in if necessary. <laughs> yes it was a complicated time in my life and I think working for switchboard is... Probably the most worthwhile thing I've done in my life. That sounds horribly schmaltzy. It was within Switchboard I had the space to explore. Basically, I had the space to explore myself, while at the same time... Oh, screw it. How to get the... How to put it into words... Throughout the time I've had HIV, one of the important things to me is to humanise it. It's always important, I think, to put a name and a face on HIV. I'm wearing a t-shirt with the slogan, HIV positive long-term survivor. I do the shopping in that.
1: These three episodes about HIV and AIDS in the logbooks we've covered 1983 to 1991 and you know we still get calls on this today so we wanted to speak to a young man diagnosed more recently and
2: living with HIV. Um, it's the kind of day that you don't ever forget. I'm Hunter, I was born in 1992 and I'm originally from West Hampstead. I was in my first year at Bristol University and I was 20 years old at the time. I went down to the, the, the Bristol University swimming pool. I remember that day I swam more length than I'd, length than I'd ever swam before just because I just felt like having a, a real kind of long swim that morning. And um, by the time I got back to the, the changing room to get, to get out of my trunks, um, I checked my phone and I had six missed calls from an unknown number. I went in, I was ushered through the waiting room extremely quickly as soon as I went up to the desk. I guess what happens next after that is is a bit of a blur, really, but the doctor was was a man, and he just said, I'm very sorry to tell you, but you have HIV. You've tested positive for HIV. I remember just disbelief and anger and... I stood up out of my chair and I felt like I was breathless. I didn't, couldn't breathe. I didn't know how to deal with that in any way. Um, I didn't know anything about HIV. I thought he was giving me a, a death sentence. I don't think he'd ever diagnosed anyone with, with HIV before. So I think I just left that meeting thinking, you've just been given a death sentence and you're going to be dead in five five years' time or so. It was um, in 2013, so, yeah, seven years ago or so, six and a half years ago. All I was aware of was that AIDS was like a killer. Yeah, my my ignorance was just absolutely, like, astonishing. I was 20 years old at the time, so um, to a quiet place in the university and just, uh, just cried um, until, yeah, I... Yeah, I I eventually went for a walk around the on the on the downs around Bristol. I tried to call my older brother first, but his phone was off and then I called home um and my mum answered. I'd been kind of building up to this phone call for like hours basically because I wasn't out to my to my family. They didn't know I was gay. And I knew it was going to be you know, I'd have to not only come out to them as gay, but also to come out to them as being HIV positive. My mum answered, and I just said, um, "I've just been diagnosed with HIV." I just remember hearing her cry on the other end of the line, just this huge kind of like it was like a sort of song of death or something. This, this like this let you know cry, and then I remember my dad coming to the phone, and um, I told him. And, you know, neither of them knew what to do or say, really. You know, likewise, I think their ignorance was as great as mine. I lost my virginity and caught HIV at the same time. I'd grown up in a rural area of, like, the north of England in Northumberland, where there was no other gay kids. You know, just on one, night drunk shag out in Sydney, I caught HIV. It was obviously really, really unlucky... I guess being quite like a fledgling gay, I definitely did have my like little wings clipped a little bit by this HIV diagnosis. When I was diagnosed in 2013, I was not able to access medication. My CD4 count was over 500. Uh, 500 seems to be about the number where if you drop below that number, you, you... People seem to think, oh, you know, your immune system isn't functioning well enough and we should probably start putting you on medication. But obviously, once you start medication, you can't ever stop it. You have to stay ad- adherent to it. My clinician in Bristol was of the opinion that, was that as I was at university, as I was young and as I was fit and healthy, there was no need to medicate me. I think that was one of the worst decisions that happened in my whole entire experience of treatment it's uh, it's an awful thing knowing that having this sense of self contamination and knowing that you're in, f- in fact uh, infectious and how can you ever expect to have a normal university experience or have a normal you know experience of someone in their early like 20s when you can't really have sex where you know the sight of like your blood or the sight of your semen is in in fact quite repulsive to you in some ways. You know, I remember being confronted by those things. You know, you, I blamed myself for being gay, for being HIV positive, and an orgasm. Any you know, a se- my semen was actually something that kind of kind of petrified me. I I kind of thought that I don't see how anyone could look at me as uh, as someone that wasn't infectious and something to be like afraid of. I remember dating this one guy. Going to bed with him. We went around to his flat, and he was this really handsome kind of PhD guy at Bristol. <laughs> I remember being really physically kind of attracted to him. I could feel that he had an erection like um, underneath his jeans, and I just had a total panic attack and basically said, I'm really sorry, I gotta go. And I just like got my, got my shirt on and, and walked out. And again, it was that same feeling of being, like, in the room with with the doctor and just feeling, like, breathless panic. Swimming has, in a way, become a part of my life just in the last few years, because I, um, last year, um, swam the English Channel. And um, I suppose... Yeah, I mean, I, th- I I believe that I'm the first person with HIV to have from the channel. Yeah, as far as I know, <laughs> um, that seems to be the case. So I've been I've been on medication for five years now, and I get seen by a, an amazing team led by Margaret Johnson, who's been working in um, HIV clinical research since the AIDS crisis, and um, I am undetectable. Um, I take one pill a day, and um, I'm. It's you know. I'm, it's it's just a part of the routine of the day that I take it in the morning. met gay men who were diagnosed in um in the eighties and nineties and I went along actually um on Dean Street the clinic there to um the gay men's group. I did feel a slight as a slight outsider within that group having not i don't have that shared sense of um i guess you know, mortality or... I mean, they, they, they really they really did live through it. They lost people, they lost friends. And actually, for me, born in 1992, um, just on the eve of combinational therapy, this isn't really a history that I... Well, it's a history that I know of, but I wasn't a lived-through history. When you've had HIV for that long, you have so many kind of comorbidities coming into your life and... You know things that are both mental and physical you're dealing with. It was it was a place that I found to be quite a depressing place, um, and I think it's fun. I mean, look, I will always advocate advocate for there should be a place uh, a safe place for gay HIV positive men. I think of a greater sense of you know mortality, but also I think I having gone through these crazy things that most normal people don't do, which is, like, writing, like, a list, thinking that they're going to die. You know, going through these sort of circumstances, I think it has given me, yes, a huge sense of, like, appreciation for not just my, my health, but my friends and, yeah, the people the people around me. So if we do eradicate it among men who have sex with men, then... I wonder how I'll feel feeling quite kind of as one of the, these few people with this virus and whether that will be quite an alienating place. I, at the moment, I, you know, I, I take great treatment. My life isn't in any way affected by the virus. So I think that that was a lonely thought that I had from when I was younger, was like, you're going to kind of be... Just quite alone in this situation. Yeah, it's in Europe and in America. HIV rates are seem to be going in the right direction. I mean, not necessarily among all groups. I mean, um, and, you know, that extends to different races and things as well. But I mean, um, it's it yeah I, I i think it'll be interesting to see how things turn out in, you know in in years to come and whether i'll be like a dinosaur this guy like having hiv when no one else is like yeah so
1: We know these first three episodes of season two have been tough.
0: But we wanted to give the story of HIV AIDS through the logbooks plenty of space and time because it is such a big part of our history and our present.
1: And although there were some moments of lightness, we know it's been a bit heavy.
0: So in episode four, we'd like to have some fun.
1: (laughs) The logbooks are filled with funny notes and crazy calls.
0: So we're dedicating a whole episode to them. That's next.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Cool. Finished. Yeah. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names. The logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker, and Adam Smith in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT+ helpline.
1: If you think other people would like the logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag TheLogbooks.
0: Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute the BFI National Archive the folks at ACAST Peter Zaccaroli at West Digital Content is Queen the staff and volunteers at Switchboard and all the contributors who shared their stories with us
1: Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with your gender identity or sexuality you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.